When I was in the first grade, a family member of mine had gifted me a hoodie that I proceeded to wear everywhere and at all times. It was like the hoodie was glued to me and some people thought it was my only clothing item. Let me just say my parents did not like me wearing that hoodie every day and everywhere. Well, one day it was rather hot in the classroom and I decided in the middle of the class that I would go to the closet and I would hang up this hoodie and I would just wear my t-shirt. Well, I went back to the closet and to my surprise, a girl was stuffing her backpack with my hoodie. Ah, man, that made me mad. I quickly voiced my complaint to the teacher who then voiced my complaint to the principal. I did not want to talk to the principal. I was terrified of the principal, but needless to say, we both ended up before the principal's desk. Now, I was by no means a talkative child, and for the first few minutes, I hadn't said a word. Well, this girl was spouting off a bunch of malarkey, and I thought to myself, well, most certainly, she's going to end up with my hoodie. I mean, my whole life is just going to be ruined. It's all downhill from here. But standing behind me, and this girl was the principal's secretary, who spoke up on my behalf and exclaimed, that's a boy's hoodie. It says right there on the tag. You know, there are times when we just cannot say a word. There, there are times, there are moments when we need people to speak up on our behalf. Because we can't. And I bet when we all get to heaven and we stand before God on judgment day, if we're honest, we'll probably be rendered speechless. In this passage we're going to read now, Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33, we will see how Abraham spoke up on on behalf of a group of people. So if you will, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. Again, that is Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be that from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom... Fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose... Forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, 
I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. For simplicity's sake, this morning I just have four points that I'd like to draw your attention to regarding Christ's work as our high priest. Christ the intercessor, Christ the sacrifice, Christ our help, and Christ the welcoming one. Again, that is Christ the intercessor, Christ the sacrifice, Christ our help, and Christ the welcoming one. And I will repeat those points as we go along. First, Christ is our intercessor. Did it strike you how great the need for intercession was, but just how poorly the intercession was carried out? We find in this passage the very wicked city of Sodom whose sins were so bad that the Bible tells us earlier that people were lifting up their prayers to God, asking Him to put an end to their wicked deeds. And I can imagine the neighbors of Sodom in the countryside hearing all of the partying and all of the commotion and the ritual sacrifices and all of the craziness waking up in the middle of the night yelling, will you just be quiet already? God heard the prayers of the neighbors of Sodom and God went towards Sodom to see if the reports were true. And the reports were true. Fortunately, For Sodom, Abraham, that great man of God, had compassion on them. And he decided that he should try to argue for the salvation of Sodom. The first time I read this passage, I saw the heading that was placed above the text in ESV Bibles, which reads, Abraham intercedes for Sodom. I think if I were a Bible translator for Crossway, I would write the heading as Abraham tries to intercede for Sodom. Or another heading, how not to pray to God. We see Abraham drawing near to God and pleading, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he utters this this massively erroneous presupposition Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. And so he asks, Will you then sweep away this place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And to make matters worse, Abraham amplifies his stupidity by saying, Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord struck Abraham dead. No. But he could have. (laughs) Quite surprised are we that he didn't. You see, Abraham failed to understand that no one is righteous. 
No, not one. And that according to Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. And upright is he. Listen, I don't know about you, but on judgment day, I don't want someone to speak on my behalf the way that Abraham spoke on Sodom's behalf. Many years after this terrible intercession, the Lord instituted in the book of Leviticus the tabernacle system, followed by the temple system. The Lord also created a system of priests. There was one high priest, but there were many lower priests, all stemming from the genealogical line of um, Aaron and the Levites. And the rules in Leviticus stipulated that high priests and even the lower priests would go through elaborate cleansing rituals and that they would live this ultra-high standard of life. But as the Israelites would soon find out, the priests were sinners too. And they were certainly unfit to speak on God or speak to God on our behalf. Well, you might be thinking by now, well, if Abraham couldn't do it, and uh, the priests certainly couldn't do it, well, then on judgment day, I guess I'll just have to argue my own case. Really? You know, that reminds me of an episode of Judge Judy. A defendant was on trial once for allegedly stealing the plaintiff's purse. And the judge asked the lady during the hearing what she had in her purse. And she said, well, I had my wallet. I had 50 bucks. I had some ID cards, gift cards, an earpiece, and a calculator. And the defendant interjected and said to the judge, there was no earpiece in there, ma'am. You know, that's how our case would go. Fortunately for us, we have an intercessor far greater than Abraham. Far greater than those fallible priests. We have an intercessor who speaks on our behalf and argues compelling arguments every time. Because Christ is God and is uniquely and intimately connected to the Father What Christ desires, the Father desires. And what the Father desires, Christ desires all the time. And the good news for you and I is that Christ desires our salvation. But how is this salvation accomplished? It is accomplished through point two. Christ the sacrifice. You know, one of the saddest aspects of God's destruction of Sodom is that without any form of payment for their sins, they were destined to experience eternal judgment in hell. There was no hope, no future for them beyond the grave. All they could do and all they wanted to do was to seek pleasure and to seek pleasure continually But as God saved Noah and his family from that great flood, he also had a plan to save the Israelites from the consequences of sins. On one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the the tenth day of Tishri, the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar, the high priest would 
bathe himself and put on special ceremonial garments. And then he would offer a bowl, a sacrifice for a sin offering for his family and for himself. And then the blood of that bowl was sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant. The high priest would then bring two goats into the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, one goat would be sacrificed, and uh, that's, its blood would likewise be sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the second goat, the scapegoat as it was called, was driven out into the wilderness. And it symbolized that Israel's sins had been forgiven for one year, and one year only. But this system was only temporary. For God had a plan to raise up a better system a better priest, a better sacrifice. Hebrews seven twenty six through 28 states, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, this new covenant system in which we live now is better in two ways. First, it's more simple. What has been accomplished on the cross has been accomplished once and for all. No more elaborate cleansing rituals, no more sacrifices, no more complex ceremonial law. The second way this system is better is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, something new, something amazing happened at Calvary. Not only did Christ become the high priest, he also became the sacrifice. And he was the only one who could do both. In the past, high priests could not attain to the high level of purity that was demanded of them. But this one, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was perfect. And on that day, when our Lord hung on that torture tree, The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn to symbolize that we too can now enter God's presence. We too can now worship Him and be with Him forever. Hebrews 9.13-15 states, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who, who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Because of God's marvelous plan, 
because of his immense mercy and compassion, we experience God's presence here on earth, God's presence there in heaven, sins forgiven, redemption bought. And when I hear that the priest became the sacrifice, I want to sing with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Ideally, I'd end the sermon right there, but we still have two more points and ten more minutes to fill. (laughs) And so point three, Christ our help. He is our help. I don't know if you've dealt with this experience in the past. I certainly dealt dealt with this experience when I was younger. Um, (laughs) I was terrified of pastors. And uh, to tell you the truth, I avoided them like the bubonic plague or in this case, COVID-19. <laughs> but for some reason, I, I really thought them to be in an entirely different class of Christians. And uh, I, I honestly believe that uh, they had spent 10 hours in prayer and 10 hours in Bible study, and they only got four hours sleeping every day. And uh, <laughs> that they were more than happy to spend that uh, amount of work and... I also thought their lives were perfect. And that if you looked hard enough, you'd see little golden halos over their heads like angels. You know, as I study for the ministry and uh, as I finish seminary, I've had the opportunity to meet many pastors and I feel like I'm beginning to experience the other end of their awkward interactions. I went into the... uh, Barber shop once, I won't say which barber shop, but it's a barber shop I've been going to for a long time. And um, I caught the tail end of a conversation, and I could tell it was a very colorful conversation. I certainly can't repeat the words that they use <laughs> up here in the pulpit, but they, mo- they must have known that I had heard their conversation because they were quick to tell me that uh, they were thinking about joining church soon and that they were really intentional about reading their Bibles. I thought to myself, come on, am I really that intimidating? <laughs> but let me, let me give you a little insight into the life of pastors, especially pastors that I've met. They are far from perfect. They struggle with temptation daily. Sometimes they even give in to that temptation They have financial issues. For as hard as they work, they're paid very little. Their families feel the pressures that are placed upon them. They struggle often with anxiety and depression. They worry that their work is not causing the kind of impact that they would like. And many of these pastors have even thought about quitting. Pastors are not perfect. Now, while Jesus did live a life of perfect obedience to the Father, He too, like you and me, experienced temptation 
sorrow, and persecution. Because he became man, he felt the full range of human emotion. And it is because Christ knows how we feel that he can truly say, I know you. Read with me Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If you're anything like me, when life gets tough, it is so easy to run away from God. And it's also easy to try to take all of life's matters into your own hands and to control your situation. But you know as well as I do that by running away from your Creator, you will only do more damage and cause more heartache. When you're at your lowest, you need the comfort and peace that only Christ can provide. And it's easy to resist the counsel of someone who has not experienced your own personal situation. It's easy to point fingers and say, How do you know what it's like to go through my situation? You've never been there. But Christ has experienced your situation. He has taken on a human body. He has experienced sickness, persecution, anxiety, temptation, even death. Verse 18 is also especially important for us. Jesus is able to help us when we're tempted. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. You can't do it on your own strength. You need to lean into the deliverance that only Christ alone can provide. And how great a comfort it is to know that the one who speaks on your behalf to the Father knows what you're going through. And he wants the best for you. That leads me to my final point. Jesus Christ is our one and only hope. After Abraham had finished speaking and after the Lord had went his own way, the destiny of Sodom was certain. The Lord would destroy the city. Listen to Genesis chapter 19 verses 23 through 28. The sun had arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke 
of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Like Sodom, there will be a day when the Lord will destroy the whole earth on account of sin. And because the wages of sin is death and because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God will destroy all mankind like he did during the flood. And don't think for one minute that on judgment day you will be able to hide your sins. That, that you will be able to hide in the garden in the cool of the day the Lord knows all. And yes, the kingdom of this world is doomed for utter destruction. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Abraham could not intercede for Sodom, nor could any of the high priests. And the many sacrifices and rituals provided by the priests were only temporary. But a high priest has come after the order of Melchizedek. There's one who lived a perfectly righteous life. And who has taken the wickedness of the people upon himself and has bore it on the cross. And for the sake of the elect and whose high priest Jesus Christ dwells, those people will be saved. I trust that many of you here today are looking forward to that day when you too will be saved. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, have confidence that on the day of judgment when the great accuser is attempting to persecute or to prosecute your every evil thought and deed, Jesus will be sitting enthroned in heaven and he will say, I will forgive you. Your sins were placed on me on that cross. But here's a warning. A somber warning to those who have not accepted Jesus Christ into their hearts. You're going to receive a much different response. You see, the Lord will call your name. You will stand before the majesty of God. Satan will prosecute like he does with believers. Only this time, instead of looking to Christ, you're going to look to yourself. And you're going to try to argue your own case. Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Didn't I volunteer on the greeting team and the worship team, I gave money to the needy. And come on, Lord, I'm not that bad. Sure, sometimes I slip up and gossip and lust and idolize everything that I have, but other than that, everything's all right. And the Lord will say, depart from me, 
you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus on my side. I want him as my intercessor, as the atonement for my sins, as my help, and as my hope. You can have him too. For Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To all the Christians here who have known Christ for some time, that applies to you too. You will be saved. If you believe now that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved on Judgment Day. If you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not confessed your sins, and if you do not believe that He is Lord, Christ is a very welcoming God. And you can come to Him. You can come to Him today. Let us pray.